Emmaus Church is a church community delighting in Jesus together for the joy of Ankeny. We hope the following sermon brings you closer to the joy we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about us, please visit EmmausChurchAnkeny.com. Well, I am excited to dive into the book of Mark with you all. Uh, we've got, I think it's 28. I couldn't, it was hard for me to keep track of the counting. Maybe I should put numbers on it on my schedule. But uh, we're going to be in the book of Mark um, despite two very, two two-week breaks in the middle uh, uh, until Advent. So I'm looking forward to basically spending most of the rest of 2023 with you guys, army crawling our way through this book. And what's going to be interesting, what's going to be interesting is, if you didn't know this, you probably do, that Frontier is actually doing the same sermon series with the same texts on the same day for the rest of the year with us. So um, I am sure Cole's sermons are going to be great, but they're probably going to be very different from mine. <laughs> We're very different approaches to the text, same with Carlos. And so if you have interest and have time, I do recommend listening to those uh, through the week, not only to appreciate the differences, but um, he will probably hit on things that, that I don't because um, with all of these texts, there's enough content in them. I'm not going to have time to talk about I wish this morning I could delve deeply into the issue of baptism because there's so much there. But, um, but I'm, not, I'm just going to brush over it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. So uh, that being said... Let's pray, ask God's blessing as we enter into the sermon series and, and jump in. So, uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as a church we can gather together and sit beneath your word, hearing it read. And then also, that Lord, we just pray that and ask that your Holy Spirit now would open our eyes and our hearts to the truth of what we're reading here. As, as Mark says here in Mark 1, that this is the gospel of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just pray that the gospel, um, as we go through this series, would just become more and more clear. And that the kingdom that Jesus is establishing through his gospel, Lord, that it would take root deeper in our hearts and further in our community as, as we continue to grow as a church. So I just pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. So... Mark chapter 1. Imagine the following scene. You hear laughter. You hear life. Fun. You hear the sound of children running and playing, like the sounds you hear downstairs. You hear the sound of Nerf guns going off. Fake simulated deaths, like, oh, you know, children riling on the floor. Kids dancing. Kids singing Baby Shark nonstop. Now, you would think that these are the sounds of maybe a, uh, an amusement park, a birthday party, or time downstairs with the kids in the maze kids, right? But these are actually the sounds that I experienced working in a cancer floor at Blake Children's Hospital. A lot of people have the impression that working on a cancer floor is death, and they're not wrong. But there's also this crazy element where I went in and got to basic. I would tell people, well, part of my job is to make kids cry. But part of my job is also is also to just be an idiot all day long and play with kids. <laughs> Little girls painting my fingernails, and I let them put makeup on my bald spot on my head. Like we we had fun on the on the cancer ward. 
And the point in bringing this up is just to point out the fact that hope and life springs from the most unsuspecting of places. Hope, life, joy emerges out of darkness, out of a place where you would think only death and sadness can be. The book of Mark is a story of hope and life emerging from the un most unsuspecting place. And that's what we find in our text this morning. Our text this morning captures this truth poignantly for us. It shows us that God is bringing hope of all places out of the wilderness. That's what we find in these first 13 verses. That the gospel finds its origin and its story coming out of a place that, like we would think of as a cancer ward. The wilderness. And this text contains three scenes. We're going to see a man from the wilderness. We're going to see God's blessing in the wilderness. And we're going to see Jesus battling in the wilderness. And all three of these scenes, as you can imagine, as I've just indicated, they all happen in the wilderness. And, if, and just to be clear here, give a definition of what we mean by wilderness. The wilderness is an inhospitable place of death. That's what the wilderness is. It's ruled by Satan. It's ruled by demons and beasts. A uh, New Testament scholar by the name of William Lane, he said this, that it is, the wilderness is a place of curse. There's neither seed nor fruit, water nor growth. He says man cannot live there. Only frightening and unwanted kinds of animals dwell there. And he goes on and says the wilderness is the realm of Satan. And we, we see this throughout, throughout the text. We see this all throughout the Bible that God drove Adam and Eve out into the wilderness. And it took incredible miracles to keep them alive out there because he had to bring manna out from rocks and he had to bring water from rocks and they needed, uh, they needed miracles to keep their clothing together because they would otherwise perish out there without because they couldn't get clothing. It was a place of death. It's a place where people go to die. And yet it's out of the wilderness that we get verse 1. It's out of the wilderness that we get verse 1. Verse 1 tells us, it's not only the, the introduction to the book, but it's an introduction to our text. And it tells us that it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this gospel is coming out of the wilderness. The most unsuspecting place where the gospel would be coming from. Gospel here, um, most of you are probably aware of what this means, but it's just simply a term that means good news or glad tidings. In other words... Good news is coming out of the wilderness, the most unexpected place. The word gospel was significant in both Jewish and, to Jew, both Jewish and Roman people, the people to whom Paul, uh, Mark was writing here. Uh, Mark was writing uh, to explain how Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, but he does it in a way that's, that makes sense to Roman people, and this term had significance in both the Jewish world, and it also had significance in the Roman world. There, I could spend an hour on this alone. This is really interesting. For the Romans, this was a very common political term. It was a political term, a political term that encouraged people to celebrate the reign and to celebrate the power of, an, of, of a ruler. It was what they would use of their emperor. It was a phrase, to, they would use it to celebrate his birthday even. There's a, there's a calendar that we found from biblical times uh, in this uh, place called uh, Perini in Asia Minor. And it has an inscription on it. It says, the birthday of the God, the emperor, the God who was for the world for the beginning of joyful tidings. And that phrase, joyful tidings, 
in their language is the word gospel. That the, the emperor brings the gospel. He's going to bring salvation to the people. Um, and, that, and that's what it was. It was to indicate the wonderful reign of an emperor. And it was to celebrate him. For the Jewish people, it was a little bit different. Theirs comes out of a prophetic tradition in the Old Testament, which we find straight away in verse 2 and 3. And Mark here summarizes that prophetic tradition for us in verses 2 to 3, where it functioned at more of an announcement of future salvation. So what you find, the, diff- the main difference between the Roman view of gospel and the Jewish view of gospel is that the Roman view focused on the current reign of a man, and the Jewish version, the Jewish understanding of gospel, was that it came out of Old Testament prophetic tradition of a future salvation from God. So that's, that's kind of the difference. And, and Mark is intentionally speaking to both here. He's, he's informing both. And in verses 2 and 3, verses 2 and 3 are really weird. What I'm going to be saying a lot of times over the next year is we could spend another hour on this. And this is one we could definitely spend another hour on. Verses 2 and 3 are very, it's a very challenging text. So Mark here says in verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah, there's a problem. You're not going to find this in Isaiah. (laughs) Um, If you try to find these verses in Isaiah, you'll find a portion of it in Isaiah, but you're not going to find it. In Isaiah, and so this gets scholars from the very early church till today debating and deciding what's happening here. Um, these verses actually come from three different sections in the Old Testament. Uh, you get a section from Exodus twenty three twenty. You get a section from Malachi chapter three and verse one, and then you do get a section from Isaiah chapter forty and verse three. And Mark just mashes them all together into one and says, "Isaiah said it." Now, what we're to do with that? Who knows? My guess is, this is my guess, this is my opinion on it, it's certainly not authoritative, is that the, the, when you look at the overall style of Mark's writing, Mark is writing in a hurry. Um, he uses the word immediately 42 times throughout the book. Mark is in a hurry. Like he's just moving. It's a high-action-packed book. He's moving from scene to scene throughout the book. And what I think is happening here is Mark's like, I, I, the details don't matter. This is the prophetic tradition. Isaiah had the, the preponderance of the prophetic tradition that Jesus, that Jesus uh, fulfilled. And I think Mark is just speaking in shorthand here because he doesn't have time to get into all the details. Which we're going to find is like everything else he does in this book. Which is why it's the shortest of the Gospels. He's, he's very short on details. So what does all that mean and, and why does that information matter? So... What Mark is doing here, he's saying this. He says, a new, this, is, this is the impact of what he's saying in these first three verses. A new emperor is coming from the wilderness. Unlike any king or emperor you've ever seen, the place of death, the wilderness, is going to birth a king of good news, a king who's going to bring salvation and bring hope and life into the world. And that's what's happening. The wilderness is going to give birth to a king who is going to bring hope, life, and salvation for the world, the salvation that God had promised Throughout the Old Testament. It's both a political and a spiritual reality happening at the same time. It's a heavily political text. There is a new king that is taking up reign in the world. And his kingdom is going to come out of this text. So it's note there the highly political nature of this text. And so in doing this, he gives us three scenes that set the stage for the emergence of this new political leader, this new king who's going to bring the hope and salvation and life to the world. And he shows us straight away that it's Jesus. Jesus is the, Jesus is the dude. He says there in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel 
of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he names who this king is. There's no mystery here. He wants us to know from the, from the very first statement that this new king, this new emperor, this new ruler is Jesus. And he is coming out of the wilderness to bring his kingdom. So we're going to give short attention to these scenes as Mark does. Um, but we're going to see these three scenes then where we see the kingdom of God coming out of the wilderness. So first, we see a man from the wilderness in verses 2 down to 8. These verses 2 down to 8 show us John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a man of the wilderness, a man who lived in the wilderness. He is one scholar noted. He was a wilderness nomad. He dwelled and lived in the wilderness. Verse 6 makes it clear. Look at verse 6 with me. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. In other words, John the Baptist, if Jim Snowden was not married to Lynn Snowden, this would be John the Baptist. <laughs> Imagine a dude living alone in the mountains of Alaska, covered in bear fur, with little like homemade homemade strings of rabbit and squirrel jerky hanging around his neck, coming up out of the mountains, a redneck of rednecks, right? A dude rolling in, smelling like he's been in the mountains with an uncut beard. That's John, a crazy looking dude rolling in on the scene out of the wilderness. He has found a way to survive in the wilderness. A lot of academic study into that. His influences, I'm not going to go into it. Qumran, if you want to look it up. Qumran community. I spent way too much time reading on that this week. I told Brenda all about it and bored her with it last night, so I wouldn't do it to you. <laughs> we did that over tacos. <laughs> um, so when, when John comes in, in on the scene, he comes in fulfilling this prophecy that Mark is alluding to in verse 3. He says, The voice of a wilderness crying, or the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That is the quote from Isaiah there. That's the section from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, that uh, that that um, Mark is quoting. And and that is referring to John the Baptist, who fulfills that, who comes from the wilderness, out of the wilderness, and he's heralding and preparing people for the emergence of this new king and this new kingdom to come up out of the wilderness. And, and it makes sense. It makes sense that Mark would do this because this, as I said, is a political passage. And when you know anything about ancient history, when new kings would roll in to take over new territory, they would always send out an emissary in front of them. Genghis Khan did this. He's famous for this in history. He would, Genghis Khan took over more than a third of the world at the time when he was in Asia. He would send an emissary out in front of him, a forerunner, to go up to the city and basically plead with them and say, bow to Genghis Khan or we're just going to kill all of you. And, if you. and if you do, you could be his subjects. Go through. There was some ritual they went through to emphasize their commitment to the new ruler. And if they did that, they, they would exist under his rule. And if they didn't, he would just kill them all. This was common in Greece. This was, this was the way po political uh, figures like emperors, Alexander the Great, this is how they conquered nations. They would go in, send someone in, 
announce the new king, and give them opportunity to come in under that king's rule. And that's exactly what's happening with John the Baptist here. He's coming out of the wilderness, and he's saying, there's a new king and a new kingdom coming. Here's a ritual to give you opportunity to forsake the gods of the world and submit to the true God, the true king, Jesus Christ, and come in under his, under his rule and find life and find hope. Now I'm, I skipped a lot in my notes, just talking off the top of my head, so I've got to find myself here. So here's the irony. God's emissary is coming into the world out of the wilderness and calling people to repent of their commitment to the gods of the world and to submit to the rule of King Jesus. And as he does, this, this kingdom is presented as a kingdom of life and hope. It's good news for people, not bad news. You would think, just like a cancer ward, that more oppression, more pain, more darkness would come out of the wilderness. But instead what we find is gospel. We find good news. We find hope. We find life coming from this new king and from this new ruler. And we find that Jesus is God himself. Jesus, Jesus um, is the fulfillment of the prophecy of God's salvation coming to mankind. The good news coming. We see, that, we see it very clearly in verses 7 and 8. His discussion on baptism here. I'm going to just brush over it. I don't have much time for it. Other than an initiatory rite under the rule of a new king, we find also that it, the difference between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism is that Jesus is the one who dispenses the Holy Spirit with his baptism. It says there in verse 8, I baptized you with water, but he's going to come and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's actually going to bring God's presence. And throughout the scripture, only God brings God's presence. Only God baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Only God can, uh, can send the Spirit forth. And here we see that Jesus is going to be the one to do that. He is God. He is mediating the presence of God to the people of God. Bringing God and his salvation to the people. In short, Mark introduces here John as the one who prepares the way of the coming king. He is God and he rules and reigns and he gives his Holy Spirit to those who are his subjects. And oh, how I wish I could go further on this. But we need to see two more scenes before we can move on. So we see a kingdom being prepared by John the Baptist. But we also see the second thing here, God's blessing in the wilderness in verses 9 through 11. Verses 9 through 11 describe for us the baptism of Jesus. And it says it's taking place in the Jordan. And we, we are well aware that this took place in the wilderness. It says there, Jesus left Galilee. You'll see there, um, he came from Galilee and he went out to the Jordan. The Jordan was in the wilderness, not even on the border of the wilderness. It was in the wilderness. Jesus goes out into the wilderness and he receives the baptism of John. Now the problem here, immediately, the big question that comes to our mind is, Jesus is baptized by John. So what sin did Jesus need to repent of? Because this is a baptism of repentance from sins. Why is Jesus getting baptized? He doesn't have any sin to be repented of. We believe that Jesus was sinless. So why does he need this baptism himself? If he's the ruler, why does he need this baptism? The closest corollary to, modern, to the modern experience I can think of to help us understand what's happening here is um, Inauguration Day for a president. 
when we have a presidential election, this last time uh, Joe Biden was elected, um, he's declared the president by winning. And then, in, is it January? January sometime? January 6th. Is it January 6th? Hmm. January 6th. I will trust Lynn on this. I make sure your name's on the recording so people can blame you personally <laughs> if you're wrong on this. <laughs> Uh, in January, when the president is inaugurated, he goes through a ceremony, a ritual, to formalize, to inaugurate his, this, this new leader's place as the new governor of, 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 the, of the country or whatever it is that they're governing. And that's what's happening here. Jesus receives baptism as a rite, as a sort of ritual that... Usher that inaugurates and begins his rule as king. This is an, this is his essentially his formal inauguration into the role of the one who's going to bring this kingdom on earth. Up to this point, I mean, good night. Mark has skipped every part of Jesus's life up to this point. The other gospels they're going to give us details about his birth. There's no Christmas in the book of Mark. <laughs> The Scrooges in the room go, yay! <laughs> Mark has no Christmas. There's no virgin birth. Not that Mark denies the virgin birth. He just These are details that he just skips over. He skips over the flight to Egypt. What Mark wants us to, Mark wants us to start from square one to understand this is all about Jesus. And this is about his entrance as the king of the world. And he's coming in, and the first thing we see of Jesus is him inaugurated into the office of, as king, as king through the baptism of John. And what the, and this glorious scene of Jesus being baptized, I mean, good night, it, it, it's, it's a beautiful picture. We see the three persons of the Trinity all coming expressed in, in this moment. You see the Father speaking from heaven, this is my beloved Son. You see the Holy Spirit coming down as a dove, and God in conspiracy with himself, the three persons of the Trinity, come together and anoint and, and inaugurate Jesus as the king and as the one who's going to bring his kingdom. So, yeah, John baptized with water. He got Jesus wet. But what we really see happening here is God comes down and says, you know what, I'm pleased with Jesus and I am pleased to make him the king and ruler of the world. And the Holy Spirit comes upon him to empower him to bring about his kingdom on earth. And here's why we need to see this. Here's why we need to see this. This is, this is why Mark wants us to see this scene with him. He wants us to see this because he wants us to see Jesus as the new and better Adam. The new and better father of the human race. The new and better ruler and leader of God's people. Adam and Eve, as we read in Genesis chapter 3, they violated their covenant with God. They violated their covenant with God, and because of that, God cursed them, and what did God do? He sent them into the wilderness. That's what we read in chapter 3 of Genesis. We just read. God sends them out into the wilderness where they're going to endure curse from God. And here, Jesus, we understand he keeps God's law. He kept the covenant with God in a way that we cannot. In the way Adam and Eve did not. And rather than being cursed by God here, we see that Adam gets the praise from God that God intended to give Adam and Eve. That Adam and Eve had the hope of receiving before they fell into sin, before we fell into sin. And here, he, he's blessed, and there's triune joy, and it's happening 
of all places in the place where the curse reigns. Right? It's happening in the wilderness. It's happening in the place of death. John the Baptist announces to the wilderness, he announces to the world, a new king is coming, and Jesus steps forward as God, and the whole Godhead says to the world, a new day's arrived. A new king is in town, and all three persons of the Trinity are taking their throne to overthrow the system of death and destruction, to take Satan down, and to usher the kingdom of God into the world. It's an incredible scene. It's an incredible inauguration taking place in the most in the most dark place of the world, in the darkest place of the, of the earth. Okay, so there's, there's, there's the blessing of God in the wilderness. And now what, what John does in verses 12 and 13 is he gives us this scene of Jesus battling in the wilderness in verses 12 and 13. Jesus is driven out into the wilderness, and it says there to engage with Satan. Now the other biblical writers, as is going to be true for most of these stories of the book of Mark, give us way more information. They give us way more information about what happened here. Mark gives us two verses. Two verses on things that take entire chapters. <laughs> um, but I think he does it for a good reason. He does it for a good reason. Um, up to this point, it's been ceremony. Up to this point, it's been pageantry, right? It's been symbolism and announcement. And we wonder... Is God just a bunch of talk, right? Is God just a bunch of talk? Is it just a bunch of symbols that don't mean anything? In the hospital, uh, we, we uh, have these oxygen monitors that we put on little kids. And they're these little like things that we wrap around their fingers or around their toes. And if you've been in the hospital with a kid who's got like some respiratory condition, we monitor their oxygen levels. And what happens is over and over again, um, the, these, these uh, sensors don't work very well. And so we'll get hundreds, and I mean hundreds, of alarms go off on our little phones and at the nurse's station telling us that somebody's oxygen levels are too low. And almost never is it an accurate thing where we go like, when we hear the alarm, nobody freaks out. You would think, you would think that if an alarm is going off on a low oxygen for a kid, everyone would be like, oh my gosh, we need to save this kid. These things go off and we just ignore them. We have what we, they call it alarm fatigue. You hear an alarm so many times, eventually, you just kind of grow dull to it because it never really means anything. It's that way with our tornado sirens, right? How many of you go to the, to the basement immediately when a tornado siren goes off thinking, oh my gosh, a tornado's coming to my house? We just don't do it. Here's the thing. Rulers, emperors, kings brought their good news to people over and over again throughout history. The coins, uh, coins from ancient ancient times, you find these printed on them. Wayne Larson over at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, he has a bunch of these. And it says the gospel of emperor whoever, right on the coin. Like, he's bring, this emperor is going to bring you the gospel. He's bringing you good news over and over again. And the question that I think comes into my mind and I think should come into all of our minds is, well, every king up to this point, and even in today's age, how many political ads do you hear and go, oh, they're going to do that? <laughs> no, we, we, we're, we, I mean, uh, the, um, the, the famous line, was it from George Bush Sr.? Read my lips, no new taxes, and what happened? New taxes, right? I mean, that's like, that's like the meme. That's like our cultural meme. We know that human leaders don't deliver on the good news that they promise. 
that we have like alarm fatigue with political leaders. We know they don't deliver. And so the question is, does God just going to give up a, a stump speech? He's going to give an inauguration address that's later going to that's later going to fall on his face. And what we find here in in chapter Mark chapter 1 verses 12 and 13 is we see that Jesus is a king who goes to battle straight away. He's going to deliver on his promise from day one. From day one, he is stepping in as king, and he's going to go to the hardest, to the darkest, to the, to the most difficult place, and he is going to assert his authority, and he's going to assert his kingdom in the place where it's least expected, specifically in the wilderness. And so we see that in verse, in verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. We see a triune move here. The Spirit and Jesus. God is determined to take his kingdom into the wilderness, and Jesus there does battle with Satan. We don't get the details here that Matthew and Luke give us, but what essentially happens in the wilderness is that he is, he is tempted by Satan. Satan, the ruler of the wilderness, is engaging in battle with Jesus. And, and how is Jesus going to handle himself in the wilderness? How is Jesus going to handle himself? Well, we see that Jesus did not back down. And if you look at the other Gospels, Mark here, unfortunately, doesn't give us the result. Look at what he says there in verse 13. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. That's it. That's all he tells us. And the implication, the implication, and with information we have from both Matthew and Luke, is that Jesus went out there and he put Satan... And he put the, the gods of the nations, he put the world on notice that his kingdom is coming. The gospel is going into the darkest and hardest places. The places of death and the places where Satan and beast dwell. And Jesus here doesn't defeat Satan in this moment. We, should, we need to know that. And we, the reason we know that is that Satan, uh, Jesus doesn't completely defeat Satan here. What ends up happening is that Jesus fulfills um, what Adam and Eve couldn't do. They were, he remained faithful in the midst of temptation. And he brought a faithful, covenant-keeping, law-keeping uh, life into, the, into the, the place of curse. And though Satan wasn't defeated in this moment, we know that because all throughout the book of Mark and all throughout the other Gospels, Satan and demons continue to assault Jesus and even on the cross, Jesus is battling Satan. And even in his descent into hell, he's battling Satan and demons. He does win over him in the resurrection and defeats him. But he begins the war here. He declares war on the kingdom of darkness. He declares war on the curse. And he is establishing his kingdom in the world. He starts day one. He doesn't have a 100-day plan. He's got a first-day plan, right? Yeah. <laughs> presidents have. He's going out, and he's going to establish his kingdom. And it's not shocking. It, 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 we can look at this and say, oh, my gosh, isn't it cool? Isn't it ironic that God is establishing his kingdom in the hardest and the least obvious place in the world? But it's really not. It shouldn't be shocking to us if we've read the scriptures. God has always, from Genesis 3 on, gone out to his people in the wilderness, taking them through water, pouring out his spirit. He went out to chase down Abraham in the wilderness. 
to make a promise that Jesus, the seed of Abraham, would come and be a blessing, a gospel to the nations. That's what the whole Abrahamic promise was about. It was about Jesus. We know that from the book of Galatians. That Abraham's promise from God was that Jesus would come and bring, bring hope and good news into the world to be a blessing to the world. He went out to deliver Israel from their bondage to slavery in the wilderness. Israel is under the curse and under the rule of the gods of the world. And what does God do? He leaves the garden and he leaves the place of, of safety and glory. And he goes out into the, out into the desert and he finds Moses and he calls him and empowers him by his spirit to deliver the people of Israel out of the hands of the other gods and to and he takes them through water a kind of baptism through the red sea and then he destroys the enemies of God's people in the red sea and then all throughout the desert all throughout the wilderness as we already noted God is providing for them in the place of curse and death he's giving them manna he's giving them water from rocks he's giving their clothes the ability to stay he gives them a law where he can engage them and where he can worship with them and then he sends his spirit to them which is crazy i mean you can see this that jesus is dispensing the spirit in 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 the wilderness the spirit go, drives him out there with him and the angels are out there this is what's happening in the wilderness with the people of god is the spirit is a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and the presence of god fills the tabernacle and is present with them in the place the darkest place on earth on in the wilderness God did this for David, anointing him with the Spirit. His defeat over Goliath in the wilderness. His promise of a kingdom that would not end. His and Solomon's building the temple and the Holy Spirit coming and filling the temple. And he now fulfills all of this in the person of Jesus. He fulfills all of these things that we're pointing forward and letting us know that God is a God who goes out into the wilderness to take his people through water and to dispense his Spirit to them. That God has done this from the beginning and he's doing it now fully, finally, and most gloriously in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. He goes, and then what's crazy is as we look forward, Jesus takes his kingdom and he goes to the darkest place. Out in the wilderness, on a rock of a skull outside the city, where he experiences death on a cross. Suffering for sinners out in the wilderness. He comes face to face with face with death itself. He faces the gods and Satan himself in the descent to hell, and he wins over them, rising from the dead. And here we find life bursting forth from the grave. Life, good news coming out of the wilderness, and the kingdom of God is established in the darkest, deadliest, and most cursed place. Jesus is not doing anything new here. God hasn't changed his plans in sending Jesus the way in which he did. This has been God's way from the beginning. This is what God does. He goes to the wilderness to meet us and to bring his good news in the darkest places. And the reality is, is we tend to not believe that. We tend to feel like the darkest places are the places that we want to avoid. We feel like the hardest things in life are the things that we need to dispatch with because we tend to see God's kingdom in the places where it's obvious and easy, right? We don't, we don't readily see God's kingdom in a cancer ward, right? We don't readily see God's kingdom um, 
for our little our little church community here, we have a lot of sickness. We've had it. Stanton, you guys have had it. Dad's got it. Theoden's suffering with it right now. That is not outside God's kingdom. It's in those dark places, in the hardest places of life, where the kingdom of God is breaking in and where Jesus is setting up his rule and his reign. Which is why, it's why that Paul can boast in his weaknesses, in the hard places of his life, whatever those weaknesses were. It's because God is determined not to go start to, to pick off the low-hanging fruit and go set up his kingdom there. God is looking for the darkest and hardest places in the human heart to set up his kingdom. He's looking for the, the, struggle, the hardest and deepest and most profound struggle of sin that we have. And his purpose is to make war on that sin and to overcome it, to help us live out the image that he's created us to be. To, to allow us to live in his kingdom as his subjects. That means for us in our fight against sin that there's real hope for us. Because it's not like it's not like God's kingdom only exists where we obey. God's kingdom is particularly designed to, to infiltrate the areas of disobedience in our life and to exert his rule and authority over those areas and transform them into good news, into, by his good news and by the work of Jesus. And so there's real, real hope for us in this. Not only in the circumstantial difficulties of our life, but in our general fight for sin, a fight against sin, um, that, that God has purposed from, all, from the very beginning that those are the places he is most determined to get to. That's his, that's his first priority, is to show up there and to help us in our fight against sin and in our fight for joy and delight in Jesus over all things. Jesus is coming into the wilderness. He goes into the wilderness. He goes into the darkness to defeat Satan and set up his rule for you and your joy in him. And that's good news. That's really good news. Imagine a world where God only wanted to go to places like Ankeny in the world, where everybody looks happy and acts fine, <laughs> but there's deep darkness underneath the surface. Um, glad that God is not superficial. He goes to the hard and to the dark places for us. And that gives us, that should give us real hope. So let's pray and thank him for that. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you. Lord, we thank you as our first peer peek into the book of Mark here, Lord, uh, seeing your intention to enter into the wilderness and to establish your kingdom there first. Um, God, I just pray that that would fill our hearts with hope. It would encourage us. And I pray that um, that, that would yield in us a greater desire to repent of sin, a greater power uh, to submit under your rule as our king, and a greater joy finding and, and enjoying the good news of your rule over us uh, through, through the reign of Christ. So I just pray that you would help us with that. And then for those of us enduring sickness and other difficulties in life, God, I just pray that this would just be encouraging, um, that you're not absent from those experiences, but you are particularly, you are particularly 
passionate and of first priority to make your kingdom and your reign known in those places. So I just pray that your presence would be a comfort as well. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.